This is Darrell Lalia, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast, episode 110. Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest the needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location-independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and global entrepreneur. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey, this is Mark Asquith, the host of the 7 Minute Mentor podcast, global entrepreneur and all-round geek. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. I am MC Lobsher, the Cashflow Ninja, and you're listening to Before the Millions podcast. You're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent, you've come to the right place. Mr. Hollywood himself presents the Before the Millions podcast. And now your host, DeRay Olalaye. What's going on, BTM community? We're back for another installment, another episode of the Before the Millions podcast. And this is episode 110, episode 110. And we are talking financial relationships. We are talking networking. We are talking brand building. We are talking just working the room. And we've said it a few times on the show, but we are not in the real estate business. We are in the relationship business. And our guest on today's show has actually coined the hip hop advisor. He advises many clients in the hip hop world and many, many superstar athletes. Today, he's actually going to advise us on how he got to where he is today. We're going to talk to Rob Wilson and talk about his Before the Million story. We're going to talk about how he started rubbing shoulders with some of the most affluent people here and how he built and gained their trust enough to become their financial advisor. And we're also going to give you guys insights on the best way to attend social events by yourself, how to work the room, how to network, how to start building those relationships rather than going to these events and not really coming away with anything or talking to a ton of people and not really building a solid foundation with anybody. We're going to talk about exactly how you can work the room and build your financial relationships. Rob drops three amazing book recommendations on this subject alone. So again, if this is a big gray area for you and you're just like, I know how important relationships are in real estate, but you just don't have a grasp on this yet. First and foremost, this episode is going to open all of that wide open for you. But second off, let me give you guys the three recommended books that Rob suggested you guys take a deep dive into if you really, really are serious about getting better at building these relationships. So book number one is never eat alone. Book number two is work the room. And book number three is how to win friends and influence people. Now, Rob is going to go into a little bit more detail on some of these books on the show. And none of these books are his before the millions book of the week. So stay tuned for that as well. But the reason that I'm mentioning these books now, so you guys have a head start before the episode starts, is that if you guys want to go ahead and listen to these books for free or on me, you guys can actually go ahead and visit beforethemillions.com forward slash book. And you can listen to two of these books for free by signing up for a monthly membership, which I've had at this point for over three years. Speaking of books, I've personally read a little over 100 books at this point, and I still have a running list, a long running list of books I have yet to read. So I've taken the next five books on my book list and I've added them to my Audible cart to get them ready for consumption this week and next week. One is called The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. And I actually have two books by that author. His name is Robin Sherma. And the second book that's in my cart by him is The 5 A.M. Club. This book is all about owning your morning and elevating your life. And I believe that this book is actually going to highlight how like the geniuses and like the business titans of the world have really just started their mornings and what they do that's so different from everybody else. Again, I haven't read the book yet, but so far it reminds me of The Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod. Speaking of Hal, one of his books, one of his newest books, actually his very newest book that just came out, I think like last month is on my book list as well, but we'll get to that. The next book on my list is a book I have already read before, and it is called Think and Grow Rich, A Black Choice. Now, I read this book back in 2017, I believe, and it was amazing. Now, this book is by Dennis Kimbrough, 
And the reason I'm going back to read this book is because I remember how powerful I felt reading this book the first time around. I remember some of my initial actions, some of the initial things that I decided to do immediately after reading this book. I remember some of the implementations that I had, and I know that this is going to be a great book that's going to help me reinforce some of those practices and some of my mindset beliefs. So I'm going back to read this book two years later. Again, it's Think and Grow Rich, A Black Choice. The next book on my book list you guys probably won't care about, so I'm just going to skip right over it, but it's a book that helps you sharpen your Spanish skills. Now, Spanish is on its way to becoming my third language, and I've taken tons of Spanish courses throughout school, and it's just that I haven't dedicated the time and focus to really, really take this seriously and pick up a third language. So I think this book will give me the jumpstart that I need to really, really take this seriously this time around, but we'll see. The last book that I have in my cart is a book called The Miracle Equation. Now, you may, you may have heard of The Miracle Morning. You may have heard of The Miracle Diet. This is how Elrod's new installment called The Miracle Equation. And this is where everything kind of stemmed from. I mean, he came up with the equation far before he came up with The Miracle Morning. And if you don't know what The Miracle Morning is, go check out his book, Miracle Morning, right now, and it'll help you create and design your own personal morning routine for success. So those are the five books currently in my cart. Now, my book list is about a mile long. Out of all of those books that I have yet to read, these are the very five next books that I'm going to read. And I'm pretty sure all of these books are going to get knocked out within the next week or two. Now, if you haven't already checked out any of these books or you want to join along on this ride with me, again, you can get your next two audiobooks for free, complimentary on me. Just head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash book and start listening to your next or first free audiobook today. If we're not already connected on social media or you're not a part of my community yet, head over to beforethemans.com forward slash group where we share valuable talks, insights, Q&As, uh, goodies, giveaways. And uh, I mean, it's a community of people who are all investors or aspiring investors and we're uplifting and encouraging each other. So it's beautiful. Head over to beforethemans.com forward slash group, get plugged into the tribe, get plugged into the community and start building these relationships, guys. Relationships are so important. If you want to connect with me personally, head over to Instagram and let's connect there. Shoot me a DM. Let me know that you listen to the podcast. My Instagram handle is Daray Olalia. That's D-A-R-A-Y-O-L-A-L-E-Y-E. Last but not least, guys, last week was our two-year anniversary and I dropped an episode titled Call Reluctance. Now, this episode has, has caught in fire because so many people have struggled struggled in their business to keep business moving forward, to bring new money in the door, to increase revenue, to get face-to-face -face with clients, with sellers, with contacts, with buyers, with investors. So in addition to this financial relationship episode, head on back to the last episode, episode 109, titled Call Reluctance, and I'm going to show you exactly where some of your fears are lying and how Call Reluctance is really what's holding a lot of people back from growing their business. So I love these two episodes as a tandem because it's like, hey, these episodes are showing you how important it is to build relationships, to get out there and talk to people. Okay, so that's all I have for you guys for the intro. Let's go ahead and get into the tip of the week and then we'll be right into the show with Mr. Rob Wilson. DeRay's tip of the week. Now, in the spirit of relationships, building relationships, fostering amazing relationships, and just kind of working the room, right? And not really knowing where the conversation is going to go, but putting yourself in a position to succeed, to let other people know that you're here to serve and how you can serve. In the tip of the week today, we are actually going to create your value proposition statement. This is something I do with my mastermind members and we have a full fledged like we've had like weeks and weeks and weeks of training on this, but I'm going to succinct some of this stuff for you guys in about two minutes. So let's create your value proposition statement. Now, you may know this as maybe like an elevator pitch or maybe your opener, but these things are there for you to create engagement with somebody who may otherwise not engage with you in the way that you'd like them to. Most people, they walk up to other 
individuals at conferences with their business cards and they don't have any formal training on this. So I'm not surprised why this happens. And I, I mean, I, I've done this many times. Actually, I still do this to this day because it's not always at the forefront of my mind. So again, I get slipped up all the time. But most people, they walk up to other people, they say, hey, my name is DeRay. I'm a real estate entrepreneur and business mentor. And um, what's your name? What do you do? And then we get to talking and then, you know, maybe they're asking me a few questions. I'm asking them a few questions. Oh, you're a realtor. Oh, uh, how long have you been in the business for? And you guys kind of just try to find different avenues of connecting. And oftentimes these lead to a lot of awkward conversations. Nobody really knows when to end the conversation. And it's very hard to figure out where your skills and services align when you have this approach, especially with two untrained people. So most of the time you walk away from these conversations with nothing that you've remembered about this person, nothing that you have that can possibly foster a relationship. And the business card that you do have, you're probably going to throw that away and not put it to much use. You may email them once. Because again, you didn't really build a connection first and foremost. And second off, you don't really know how you can help or serve them. But if you approach these situations with maybe an elevator pitch or a value proposition statement. And instead of saying, I'm a real estate investor, you let them know exactly what you do, who you serve and how you serve them. Then this person has one of three options because you've gotten really, really specific on what you do. This person's either going to be like, Hey, you can help me is the best possible option. Because I mean, that means you just found a new client. You just found a new customer, right? So that's option. Number one, option number two, they're going to immediately think about the person that you can help that's dealing with that exact problem right now. Yes, yes, my, my friend Sally, she's looking to sell her house like immediately and she's about to start calling realtors. And this may actually be a better option because now you have two new relationships and one of them is actually a new client. Option number three, you can't help them and there's probably nobody in their vicinity that you can help at this time. But because you were really, really clear on who you are and the value that you provide, this person's going to remember you six weeks later when he's in a conversation with somebody who needs your help. And he's going to be like, hey, I know just the person that you need to speak to. So those are the three outcomes when you have a well-crafted elevator pitch and when you have a well-crafted value proposition statement. So recently, me and my mastermind members created their whole mission statements. And this is like a full-fledged page-long mission statement. Now, from this mission statement, you can create a one or two or three-line value proposition statement. So that's what we're going to do here today, guys. And I'm going to make it really, really simple for you guys. Four-liner, guys, a four-line value proposition statement. Line one is your professional identity. I am a real estate coach. I am a business mentor. I am a wholesaler. I am a realtor. Number two, on the second line, you're going to fill out who you help. So who is your target audience? You may not know exactly what I mean by target audience because I like to get really, really specific down to the person's age, who they are, what they like to eat, the places they like to visit. That's how grand you like to get. But again, for the purpose of this exercise, who is your target audience? And in just a few short words. And then what do you help them do for line three? So either you help them do something or you help them understand something. And this is your solution or, or this is your offer, Right. But that's not it, because a lot of people who actually do this, they stop there. But this is where you promise the transformation or you promise how they get from point A to point B so that they see the bigger picture. So line four is so that and then you fill out your promise. So, again, line one, I am your professional identity. Line two, I help your target audience. Line three, I help them do slash understand whatever your solution is. And then line four, so that they can blah, 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 blah. So if you are an HR professional, you aren't in an elevator. That's why they call it an elevator pitch, because this is the time where you can get out like a quick 10, 15, 20 second pitch max. And you're surrounded with executives and, and, and associates and things of that nature. I mean, hey, this is your value proposition statement. I am an HR manager. I help those who have recently been promoted to senior leadership squash their feelings of inadequacy so that they can lead with confidence and vision. Again, you tell them exactly who you are, how you can help, and what's going to happen after you've helped them. 
So I am an HR manager. I help those who have recently been promoted. So that's your target market. People who have recently been promoted to senior leadership. Again, getting really specific, not just any type of promotion, but people who've been recently promoted to senior leadership. Now you help those people do what? What's your solution? What's your offer? What do you help them do or what do you help them understand? So you help them squash their feelings of inadequacy. Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to squash those feelings? So then line four is so that they can lead with confidence and vision. I am a local Nevada small business consultant. I help small business owners eliminate the stress, fear, and anxiety related to inconsistent income by showing them how to achieve reliable and predictable flows of profit through automated marketing. I'm a business coach. I help overworked business owners attract more paying clients so that they can make more money with less time and effort. Guys, do you understand some of these, some of these examples where I'm going with this? I am a real estate investor. I am a real estate agent. I am a broker. Doesn't matter. I help motivated sellers through the process of selling their home so that they can finally relax and have a smooth and quick transition to their brand new living arrangement. I am a podcaster. Guys, I'm just coming up with these off the top of my head, really, literally. I help listeners in the professional space understand that financial freedom is a real thing and that they can achieve it so that they can go off and travel and live the life of their dreams. You guys want me to keep going? I think, we, I think we got a good idea of what your value proposition statement is and how this can be crafted into your elevator pitch. Okay, now let's get into the meat and potatoes of this episode, financial relationships and how to cultivate and grow these relationships. And now your feature presentation. The hip hop financial advisor, Mr. Rob Wilson. Rob, how's it going today? Oh, I'm fantastic, man. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I hope you don't mind that I call you that. I know that's not the only lane that you're in, but that is one of your many facets. So why do people call you the hip hop advisor? So people that were close to me sort of started calling me that as I started to grow my business in working with pro athletes and entertainers. And so it was sort of like, you know, I'm the new generation financial advisor. I'm definitely not, you know, your grandfather's financial advisor who wants to do seminars at the Holiday Inn and you know, call up old ladies all day and try to get them to roll over your IRA. So I'm sort of the new generation with a new, fresh set of principles and advice that I think folks who are younger and, you know, either affluent already or trying to get to that place can readily identify with. So that's, that's kind of how that moniker um, got stuck on me. What sparked your interest in finance, first and foremost? Was this something that you cultivated as a boy earlier on? Was this something that didn't really hit home for you until college? What kind of sparked all of this for you? Well, what I would say is, is that I do think that I was born some kind of way wanting to own things or, or run my own thing. And some of this might be the only child syndrome, right? So I'm, I'm my mother's only child. And so I had to entertain myself a lot. And so I'd be up in my room and playing or, you know, uh, she got me a computer. I started coding on the computer, but just, you know, thinking of, of things that I could create. And so when I was very, very young, I wanted to have my own clubs and so on and so forth. And when I got a little bit older and I wanted to buy things that my mother didn't necessarily want to buy for me, uh, I started trying to think about ways that I could earn my own money so I could buy those things. So I remember one of the earliest things that I wanted to buy, and you know, I'll really be dating myself here a little bit, but I wanted to go buy a new record from Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. And for one reason or another, she didn't necessarily want to get that for me. You know, your parents didn't really like uh, rap music when it was coming up. But hey, she said, you know, if you make your own money, you can do that. And so what I did was start a store out of our house because we lived sort of in between where a lot of people had to walk past our house to get to the pool in the neighborhood. And so I started selling pizza and soda and popcorn and pretzels and these sorts of things, just, you know, snacks that people would want to, you know, what are walking to and from the pool. And I was able to make money that way. And I could go, you know, buy whatever record that I want. So that was one of my earliest, I think, memories that I have of wanting to be an entrepreneur and pursue ways to make money so that I could direct my money where I wanted it to go. And, and, and things just sort of blossomed from there. 
What examples were prominent in your life at that time of such a path? I mean, what was mom doing? What was dad doing? What were the, what were the grandparents doing? And was there something or was there some, some ignition to, to emulate like that, that type of path or that type of drive to want to be so entrepreneurial? You know, that's interesting because there really wasn't. My mother, you know, while I was very young, was working as an administrative assistant um, and then she had she had come down with multiple sclerosis, and so she wasn't working. My father was a custodian for the public schools in the area, and so there wasn't necessarily a entrepreneurial blueprint. So that's why I'm kind of like I don't know where it came from either. It's just something that perhaps you know I was born with, and and you know I don't know how that got instilled in me, but there was this sort of desire to be independent, and then I think what I identified you know, very early on, the way that you become independent is to be in control of your finances and to be good with your money. And so, you know, we, we weren't wealthy growing up. And, you know, when my mother came down with multiple sclerosis, I had to become very mature at a younger age. I had to help her write out the checks because she couldn't write them herself. And so consequently, I, I saw a little bit of what the household finances look like. And you know, that colored a lot of my, you know, desires again for later in life to not have to be in a position where I had to struggle or I had to decide which which one was I going to pay right now, which one was I going to kind of wait, you know, a few weeks to pay. And so I think those experiences as well, you know, having to be mature at an earlier age and then having that responsibility and knowing what was going on with the household finances, that probably pushed me more towards you know, the things that I'm doing now than necessarily having an entrepreneurial typical blueprint. Let's fast forward a little bit. What was life like in high school? Were you, had you already started a, a few other businesses at this time because you understood what you were doing and you were able to make a little bit more money and you saw how you were able to make make income and provide for your family? Was it something that kind of went in the back burner or what, were you taking classes or were you drawn to classes that were financial classes or accounting classes? Like talk about high school life really, really quick for us. Yeah, high school was was awesome. I was involved in everything. I was, you know, class president uh, or no, student government president uh, my senior year and, you know, all the activities that I could possibly get involved in, I was involved in. Um, I didn't necessarily have any businesses per se while I was in high school, but I did work. And so the moment that I could get a work permit, I went out and started interviewing and I got a job. And so First job I got was as a employee in the dining service at Carnegie Mellon University, which was, you know, fairly close to my high school. So I could just jump on the bus, go there to work after school. And I ended up working there for six years. I worked there for a couple of years while I was in high school. And then I worked there all throughout college. And as a matter of fact, once I got to college, they ended up making me a student manager even though I wasn't a student at Carnegie Mellon at the time, I went to the University of Pittsburgh undergrad. I ended up going to Carnegie Mellon for grad school, which is a weird, you know, how things uh, come full circle. But they appreciated my work ethic so much that even though I didn't go to school there, they made me a student manager and I had just tons of responsibility at a very young age. I mean, I had keys to everything in that building. I would close the restaurant sometimes, you know, have to count the registers, put the money in a safe. So Rob, really quick, what was driving you? Why do you think your work ethic was what it was at that time? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I will say that I, I do think a lot of my work ethic came from my father, you know, but he worked just a lot, you know, to provide for me and the rest of his family and, and so on and so forth. And so yeah, a lot, a lot of the work ethic that I have picked up definitely came from my father, seeing him get up and go to work every day and, and have multiple different jobs. You know, he'd leave his main job, work another job on the weekends and evenings and so on and so forth. And so I understood, you know, if there's things that you want, you really have to work hard for it. Nobody's going to hand it to you. So that's where I got a lot of that from. I, that's, that's what I say on the uh, first page of my book is that the work ethic that he instilled in me at a very young age has helped me achieve a lot of the things that I've achieved in my life. And you know, like I said, when I was at Carnegie Mellon, they said, hey, we, we like you, you know, so let's give you some more responsibility. So that definitely helped my progression to have that kind of responsibility at a, at a fairly young age. Were there any patterns that you initially had in your early entrepreneurial journey that you realized were patterns produced because of the beliefs that you had around money or the beliefs that you that your parents had around money? I think about the fact that as influential as your dad was and as amazing as he set an example for you to work hard, 
you also are adopting the belief, or maybe you're not adopting the belief, but you're also adopting the belief that the harder I work, the more money I can make, the more hours I stretch myself, the more money I can make. So I know that now you've found a way to be financially free, which is totally opposite of how that was back then. But these belief systems were implanted in you per se. Did you, did you start to recognize some of these beliefs? And, and if you did, what did you do to start shifting some of these beliefs? Yeah, that's a really also a good question because, you know, a lot of how we manage our money, the way we deal with other people, the way we handle our relationships are colored by what we learned when we were very young. And so I did learn the work ethic, but I think being, you know, I was a first generation college student. And so as I began to go to college, I did realize that up to a certain point, you know, my parents weren't going to be able to help me anymore in a major way. Not that they couldn't support me and do all of those sorts of things, but I was embarking on something that they had, I was going to a place that they had never been. So there's only so much that they could provide for me having not uh, had that experience before. So I knew that, okay, I'm going into a new thing. I'm kind of going to have to figure this out on my own. And what I did start to realize in the way my, my thoughts and feelings evolved is that, Yes, working hard is absolutely important and critical and, and it's expected. But what I did start to realize is that the people who work smart were the folks who were really able to leverage their work ethic, to leverage their time, to leverage their abilities, and ultimately build the type of wealth that I felt like I wanted to be able to build in the future. And so, and also that might come from, you know, I studied engineering as an undergrad. And so, and specifically, I was an industrial engineer, which is about making things better, faster, and cheaper. And so I think we all want to do things a little bit better, a little bit bigger than perhaps our parents did. And so I, I sort of melded those two pieces of information, what I gained from my parents, what I started to learn um, as a student in higher education, and that has sort to, to found the foundation, formed the foundation for the philosophies that I have today. Rob, take us across this bridge, because in undergrad, you said that you studied industrial engineering. And I think I read somewhere in your bio right before the call that you worked for a professional uh, services firm. You worked for Deloitte. I worked for a big four as well. So I'm wondering when and why the transition. So when I when I came out of undergrad and I went to go work for Deloitte, I, I loved it because they paid me well. I traveled all the time. I racked up flyer miles and hotel points. You studied uh, industrial engineering. Sure. And then you went to go work for Deloitte? I did. How did that work? Well, I worked in consulting. I worked on the consulting side, not the audit and tax side. So I was doing IT consulting at Deloitte, where we worked for a lot of big banks. I worked for you know, a number of state and local um, agencies, so on and so forth. So yeah, I was, I was on the IT side. And so again, it was great. Pay me well, travel, frequent flyer miles, hotel points, vacation, so on and so forth. But again, trying to be perceptive in terms of figuring out how can I grow my success at this firm long term, what I found was that the people who were really successful weren't necessarily the techie guys like me. They were folks who were going out, building business, bringing in new clients, so on and so forth. And I said, I didn't want to be pigeonholed as the techie guy forever. So I decided to go back to school and get my MBA and with my, my feeling being that I would go back to the firm and get on partner track and so on and so forth. While I was there, though, my interest started to change a little bit. While I loved it at Deloitte, I started to think about what they built me out at versus what I took home. And, <laughs> and while my salary was, was great, I thought that I could get well, a little- Rob, what does that mean to the people right. who are not familiar? What's that? what they build you out at and then what you actually took home. Oh, sure. So I don't know the exact numbers now, but let's just say they build me out at, you know, $400 an hour, right? And maybe they paid me $50 an hour, something, you know, something of that nature. Yep. So I thought that I could get probably a little bit bigger of that piece of that pie. So started to explore some other things. I interned in investment banking during the first and second year, in between the first and second year of business school. That environment was really just like consulting. So I figured if I was going to do that, I would just go back to consulting. But I also interned for a financial advisor at Merrill Lynch. And she happened to work with some professional athletes and entertainers. And so through that experience with her, I said, you know what? I think I could probably do that. And what I liked about that 
career path was that I felt like I could do well for myself because I saw a lot of financial advisors who were successful, but I could also do good for other people. And those two things didn't need to be mutually exclusive. And so that really drew me to it. And I like the aspect of, listen, if I want to do better, I need to go out and find more clients. I didn't necessarily want to go to the aspect of going back to corporate where I had to wait for somebody else to decide, oh, we think, we think you're ready to make more money now. We think you're ready to have an increased title. I just didn't like that. I didn't want somebody else in control of my destiny in that way. But I'm, I'm okay with if I go out and eat what I kill. If I want more money, I make more clients. And so that's where the shift came. Although I will say this, I feel like I will always be an engineer. I'm an engineer at heart. I just happen to be applying those principles now in the financial business. I love that. I love that. Now, now let's, let's kind of get a little bit more present and maybe not so present, but you started to build up your clientele. Walk me through the process of building relationships and, and some of the key things or key distinctions that you experienced as you started earlier on building relationships, maybe like a failure or a relationship that you didn't quite get to, but you wanted to and you realized what you did. And we could all take from that and learn from that, from that situation. Sure. Well, the financial industry is funny because um, especially as a financial advisor, even at the big firms, and I worked, I started my financial career at Smith Barney, they give you a phone and a desk and they say, get to work and you got to figure it out. And so I knew that I wanted to work with pro athletes and entertainers because I knew that they had a need that I could solve. Real quick, real quick, Rob. We're going to get back to this question, but you just touched on something. They had a need that you could solve. I want to, I want to draw on, on your confidence level that you could solve this need and, and what you've experienced up until this point that gave you that confidence that you could solve this need before we kind of get to you building these relationships. Well, let me also say that that confidence was evolved over time because I was, I was definitely in a new industry. And one of the things that I had to get comfortable with, listen, I'm a pretty social guy. I've got a lot of friends. I like hanging out. But a lot of times that I would go places socially, I was always with someone. So now I get thrown into this sales situation where I need to be out at all of these events and have people see my face so that I can build those relationships and build my business. But guess what? My friends don't want to go to those events or and or they're not even invited to them, Right. So I had to get super comfortable very, very quickly with going to all of these places by myself and feeling comfortable in my own skin, walking in a room where I may not know most of of the people there, but being able to strike up conversations again, build, build relationships, build a network that way. Um, it wasn't the most comfortable thing to do at first, but you know, when you realize that you signed up for this life, and it's something that's integral to your success, then you, you figure it out, you know, pretty quickly. So I had to do that. But, you know, in terms of a failure, I, one of the things that you deal with when you're in this type of business, really any business, but specifically when you're in sales, is that people are going to tell you no. And it's difficult in the very beginning not to take it personally. There were a lot of people who I felt would just work with me just because, I felt like, oh, as soon as I start, wow, they're going to open up accounts with me. And it didn't necessarily work out that way. And so you can start to ask yourself, well, what, what is it about me? What, what do I need to do better? Why don't they want to work with me? But not realizing initially that it, it's not about you. Sometimes people aren't ready to do business with anyone. Sometimes, especially in the financial industry, they don't necessarily want their business in the street, so to speak with people who they may be close to or in in close social networks with. So there are a lot of different factors that come into play with who's going to work with you or not. And there were a lot of failures in the beginning and a lot of having to deal with getting told no. But I built up a very thick skin in those early couple of years that I was at Smith Barney. And look, they had me sitting there cold calling all day. So I would sit at my desk and cold call people for eight hours. Okay. So you call a hundred people in a day you know, 50 people are just going to hang up on you. 20 people will talk to you for a minute and then tell you that they're not interested. And then the rest may give you a little bit of the time of day and you may set up a few appointments. That takes some getting used to because people don't, the average person doesn't have to deal with that level of rejection, you know, on a day-to-day basis. But it helps you build up a thick skin and it helps you learn how to deal with objections so that you can eventually 
get to the point where, where people will, you know, you can make the sale and people will work with you. I love that. And I have a million and one questions and a million and one thoughts going in a ton of different directions. And before we we started the, this interview, Rob, I know that me and you talked about like kind of talking about a financial plan, but as we've kind of unraveled your life and your story, I think that, and I'm not sure who this is going to be for that's listening, but I think that the rest of this conversation will be best served with us talking about relationship building and connecting with others. And I think that for you and for many others, there's a tipping point, right? To where you start out in an industry, you start out in a field or whatever it is that you're doing. And like you said, you're hunting and you're killing and you're hunting and you're killing. And it gets to a point to where you do enough of that to where you, you, you build up your business, you know, in a certain way. And then people start coming to look for you. Right. So before we get to that tipping point, Walk me through some of the early stage game plans. Like you're walking to these, I mean, you're coming into these, um, maybe you're going to dinners, maybe you're going to meetups, maybe you're going to conferences and events. What's your game plan? What do you have on you? What are you pitching? How are you pitching? Walk us through like your specific, like, I know you're an engineer, right? So you probably have specific things that you're doing, a specific formula of how many things you need to attend. Like walk us through some of the, some of the game plans that you had back then before you got to that tipping point. Well, it was probably less systematic than you would think in the beginning. It was it was basically go to everything that I could possibly go to, right? You want to get as many at-bats as you possibly can. And then you have to make sure when you're in the environment that you don't freeze because you may never see certain people again. You may come into contact with certain people and it's and it's in that moment where you have to strike or you miss your opportunity, right? But at the same time, here's the delicate balance that you have to walk is that you can't go into one of these rooms saying, oh, I'm trying to meet everybody so that you're talking to one person, but then you keep looking out to the side of your eye for who else is walking by and so on and so forth. It's like guys at the club. (laughs) Exactly. Right. So either you're going to talk to her or you're going to be looking for everybody else, but you got to pick one. Right. So, you know, my strategy was, you know, can I go in here? And can I at least come out with a few good relationships? You know, not I'm just trying to carpet bomb everybody with my business card because that's not good. People are going to throw those away. They could care less, right? But can I go in here and can I really connect with a few of the people here? Now, if I did know in advance some of the folks who were going to be there, then certainly I was more strategic about trying to meet them or get introduced to them. But if it was a situation where I didn't know who was going to be there, it was more or less, let's go in and try to make a real connection because you never know where it could go. I know people think that it's a numbers game, and and to some degree it is, but large numbers with no connection is not going to help you. So I, I tried to go in and really meet people, learn about them, see how I could help first before I ever asked them for anything. And, and I feel like that that was the right way to go. Were there, were there any self-help books in your, in your sphere that you were kind of holding oh, on sure. to, to at the time? No question. Um, a book called Never Eat Alone was one of the first books that I read, which is a great just primer on networking. And it was actually written by a guy who used to work at Deloitte. Keith Ferrazzi was the chief marketing officer at, around the time when I was at Deloitte. So that was great. How to Work a Room, Susan Rowan is a great book. Mm. How to Win Friends and Influence People, Dale Carnegie. Those are just absolute timeless classic books that I think everybody should read if you're getting into any kind of sales or relationship building role. I love it. I love it. Are we allowed to name some of your clients or some of your past clients, the ones that people may know? Sure. You know, I've worked with, so I've worked with football players that have collectively signed about over a half a billion dollars in NFL contracts. So, you know, one of my best long-term clients, as a matter of fact, he was in my wedding was uh, Shantae Spencer, who played for the 49ers for seven years and Raiders for one. I work with a guy named Mike Adams, uh, who played recently played for the uh, Carolina Panthers. He's been in the league for 13 years, unbelievable, undrafted, but has played in the league for 13 years. So um, real quick, real quick, how did you just one of those one of those guys? Yeah, walk me through how you built that relationship and how you got how you got them from hey I don't know who Rob Wilson is to now this is my financial advisor. Sure. So I will say that okay. So if we go back to when I was at Smith Barney, I knew I wanted to work with athletes. Had no idea how I was going to do it, but you got to start somewhere. So I reached out to a friend of mine from high school who had uh, made it to the league and just started asking him every single question that I possibly could, you know, and I had some other friends that played college, college basketball and they started introducing me to, to, to folks. So it was a little bit organic and you just, 
you know, you just find a way, you know, you talk about seven degrees or six degrees of separation, you'd be surprised how close you are to people that you really want to meet if you're not afraid to start asking people um, who they know or how you can get introduced. But a lot of people don't want to ask. So you're closer than you think. So I started to make my own way. What really accelerated things for me is that I partnered up with someone while I was at Smith Barney who was already doing this business in a big way. And so instead of going to a potential client and saying, you know, I work with, you know, three or four or five guys, I could say that we work with, you know, 30 guys. It's a different conversation to have when you're sitting down with a, with a, um, a potential client. So I definitely started to grow it organically on my own. And then, you know, my managing director said, hey, I think it makes sense for you guys to partner up if you're, you know, going to be in the same space. So that accelerated things for me. But the way that I've, because I'm so, I'm totally solo now and I still work with that clientele, the way that I've sort of built my relationship with those folks is by being honest and trustworthy and not pulling any punches. A lot of times when you have people who work with celebrity types, a lot of those people just want to hang on as long as they can get paid. I was, I never wanted to run my business that way. I never wanted to not give somebody the advice that I would give because I was afraid that they might fire. me. You know, I would rather them fire me and I'd be able to sleep at night than, you know, not being true to what I, what I feel like the best advice for them is. And so sure, I've, I've been fired before by, by customers. Um, that's going to happen. But I, again, I can sleep at night knowing that I was doing the right thing, you know, not just sort of trying to hang around just to get a paycheck. I want to maybe go into that wound a little bit more because I feel like that's where we'll, we'll find some of the gold. You get fired by a client. What does that do to your confidence level? And maybe your first client you ever got fired by, what, what did that do to your confidence level? Did you, did you run, you know, and tuck away for a couple months and to where you're just like, maybe I'm not cut out for this. Like, did you ever have any of those experiences? And, and what do you do to get yourself back in alignment? You know, if it helps, what questions do you ask yourself? Yeah, you get fired by a client, it hurts. Especially in this business, because it is, it is very personal. You know, I'm not selling copiers. You know, I'm trying to help people you know, live their best life through managing their, their finances. And so when you get, when you get fired by a client or a client decides to move their account somewhere else, it hurts. It hurts. And so the first, the first couple, yeah, it definitely hurt. Now I didn't have the luxury to be able to pull back for a couple of months. You know, you have to keep the business going, but yeah, does it, does it shake you up for a few days or a week and so on and so forth. And, you know, maybe do you make a little bit less sales calls, you know, during that following week because you're trying to figure everything out? Yeah, definitely. I, I'm, I'm sure I went through that. So it hurts. I can't deny that. But as you continue to go along, you realize that some of your clients will be great friends. And again, one of, one of my clients was in my wedding. But other of those relationships, you're going to be close. But at the end of the day, it is a business relationship and you have to realize that you're not married to these folks. And so it's okay. When you get a client, you're not necessarily going to have them forever. It's okay for relationships to run its course and, you know, things will go on. As a matter of fact, you may even still be friendly with them after they've moved on to, you know, a different business situation. So, you know, it takes a while, believe me, to divorce your personal feelings with your business relationships. But the sooner that you can do that, I think the better off you'll be. So, so these days, Rob, what is, what is your, I know it's improved drastically, but what is your self-talk now? And what, is, what do you feel about your self-worth whenever something like that happens now? Again, I know it's totally different than back then. It's much more probably focused and aligned and it, it's a reflection of something that's other, other than you know, the product that you've produced. So what's that self-talk today? Yeah, the self-talk is a lot different, right? So it's a lot different just to put it in a sports framework. Your thoughts and feelings about yourself are going to be different after you have a couple rings than they will be when you're a rookie, right? So when you put up some numbers, your self-talk is going to be definitely different. Not that maybe sometimes I don't have bad days just like everybody else. But now I can walk into a room and I can confidently go in there feeling like I have the cure for cancer. You know, one of the things that I say in the book is that if you can't walk in someplace feeling like you have the cure for cancer, regardless of whether you're selling a product or whether you just are selling yourself, you know, whether you're just a professional, 
If you can't walk in there feeling that way, then you're probably selling the wrong thing if it's a product or you need to up your game if you don't feel confident talking about your own skill level, right? So I know that 70% of NFL players are broke or bankrupt or in serious financial trouble five years or actually three years after they retire from the NFL. 50% of NBA players broke five years after the game. I already know that there is a huge problem out there that they continue to have. Every time I think I've heard everything, another guy has similar problems. And I know that my process has worked. It has been very beneficial to people that I've been able to work with. So yeah, I can lean back on that and say, listen, I know that I have achieved things. I have proven results. So it doesn't bother me now if I go and walk in a room and I don't know anybody, but I see somebody who could potentially be my client, I'm going to offer something to them. Now, look, everybody can't be your client. Apple's one of the biggest companies on the planet, yet not everyone owns an iPhone, right? So everyone is not your potential customer. And I came to grips with that. But if you walked into a room and you felt like you had the cure for cancer, and you saw somebody that was struggling with that, I would venture to say that you wouldn't have a problem offering the solution to them. And so that's how I approach things. I have a cure for cancer. Not everybody has cancer, but if they do, I'll offer it. If they want it, great. If they don't, more power to them. Yeah, for sure. I love that analogy. I love, I love it because every single listener that has a business or that, that's passionate about something, if you're not passionate to the point to where you don't feel like it's a cure for cancer, like you like people people are not going to buy into whatever it is that that, that is cuz you're not bought into that right so so that's a that's a great distinction that you make to where you feel like you have a cure for cancer although you know in parts of the world they don't even know what a financial advisor is but in your part of the world and what you're doing and the impact that you're making this is life changing and i love that so kind of talk about some of that what are you offering as a financial advisor what are some of the things that you're doing in the space now yeah so that's interesting the way that i've run my business now is different than what people think of as financial advisors. As a matter of fact, most people who claim that they are quote unquote financial advisors are really just financial salespeople. You know, I realized that when I was at Smith Barney, and this is the same for all of those firms, you know, they may have financial advisor on your business card, but I believe you are what you get paid for. And I did not get paid to provide advice. I got paid to sell things. And so that's not the reason why I got into the business though. And so I eventually evolved when I started this uh, firm with a partner. He and I left Smith Barney right in January of 2009, right in the middle of the financial crisis. And so we, we moved a little bit more away from selling products and things. When I decided to go completely solo in 2014, I don't sell any traditional financial products at all. So I'm not schlepping insurance policies at people, um, annuities and those sorts of things. I will manage investment portfolios and I provide financial planning services for people. So for example, there might be young emerging affluent professionals, attorneys, doctors, consultants, whatever, who don't necessarily have $100,000 in the portfolio that they need managed, but they do need the advice and guidance so that they can get to that point. And so that's why I put this financial planning program out there so that I can work with those folks. And then when they get ready, when they do have the portfolio, then I'm the person that they want to work with. I have also created some courses and things for people who, who really want to learn some of these financial topics. So I have an intro to investing course. For someone who says that I didn't start talking about uh, stock market at the dinner table and they want to learn, I have a course for that. Then I also developed a course that I call Expert Empire, which is where I teach people how to build profitable businesses around their unique combination of knowledge, education, experience, expertise. Because that's literally what I've done for my entire professional career. You know, I studied engineering. I became a consultant. I went back to school, got my MBA and became a financial advisor. My entire professional life has been monetizing my expertise. And I would have so many people reach out to me, particularly saying, Hey Rob, I've got all of these student loans. When I created the course, a, a young lady reached out to me and said, I have $300,000 in student loans. What do I do? And they reached out to me because I think they feel like there's a trap door somewhere that they could throw their student loans down and they'll disappear. But because that doesn't exist, there's only a few things that you could do to dr dramatically change your life so you could pay that off. So you could go and bang on your boss's desk to get a raise. And hopefully they pay you more. You could leave there and go to another job that's going to pay you more. 
you can get a second job because who doesn't want to work 80 hours a week? Or you can go out and start a business on the side. Well, or full time. Well, some businesses are cost prohibitive. If you want to go start a restaurant, you better have some capital to start that. Absent that, one of the ways that I felt like was the, the fastest and most cost efficient way to change your finances is to monetize your expertise, whether that be through writing books, you know, being an author or a consultant, a coach, um, a seminar leader, a trainer, whatever that might be, monetizing your expertise that you've already paid for, that you have all of these student loans. And by the way, you can start a business like that very quickly. And I really hate that I'm just expense. now hearing this. <laughs> I said, I really hate that I'm just now hearing this. This late in our interview, we could have we could have really uh, got gotten into this. This is fascinating. I love it. Sure, sure. But you know, you can start it very fast, and you could start it very inexpensively. Think about all of the tools that we have available to us that we could use for free. I mean, the way that we're conducting this call right now, um, using software. You think about Facebook and YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, Instagram. All of these tools that you can use to reach potential customers for free or for very low cost, it's, it's insane. And by the way, if I would have told you, I don't know, 10, 12 years, that you would be able to pull the 1080p HD video camera out of your pocket on your phone and press a button, and in 15 seconds, you could be broadcasting live to anyone on the planet with an internet connection. And oh, by the way, you'll be able to do that for free. If I would have told you that 12 years ago, you would have called the psycho ward on <laughs> because it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And it actually, it doesn't make any sense today, but that's where we're at. I don't know if it will always be that way, but there is a tremendous opportunity now. So I created that course to help folks. And then, you know, just in general, for people who are really trying to get their financial life together, that's why I wrote the book that I just released called Secure the Bag, Create the Life You Desire by Managing Your Money Like You Mean It. Because again, I had a lot of people reaching out to me saying, you know, I just don't know anything about money. I'm doing well, but I don't know where my money's going or I'm not doing well and I need to figure out how to do well. So I've been doing so much in my career over the last 14 years that I've been in the financial industry. I finally sat down, I compiled all of, the content that I produce over the years and put it in one package. And hopefully it, it helps people start to take control of their financial life. Rob, this has been fascinating. It's been an amazing interview. I think we've learned so much about relationship building, so much about just financial systems in general. And I, think I met you in Jamaica a few weeks ago when we met, we had, uh, we met on dinner on the beach. So imagine that everybody, Jamaica dinner on the beach. And we, we got to talking and we we're like, hey, let's get you on the podcast. So let's talk about your lifestyle design. And the typical individual's lifestyle is nothing like the life that we're living. Why did you want this? Like what, what made you, what made you so different from everybody else that you were just like, I cannot be in this box. Like you started in corporate in the general corporate scheme and now you're, you're on boss. What, what gave you that desire and talk about the lifestyle design that you wanted to create and that you've now created for yourself? Again, I think it, maybe it's the only child syndrome, but I just liked being able to, you know, dance to the beat of my own drum, to be in control of my own destiny. And I, and I also think, again, seeing my mother sort of struggle with the finances, but she figured it out one way or another. I don't know how she did it, but, but seeing her struggle was something that I just, I never wanted to have to do. And I knew that I wanted to enjoy my life. I didn't necessarily want to go into the same place every single day and do the same thing over and over and over again. I mean, I had an internship in college at GE. And look, GE is a great company, right? But I just didn't want to go to there or a company like that, where I was just going to do the same thing over and over and over again. And so I wanted to be in control of my own destiny. That would drew, that's what drew me to consulting, because I knew my experience would be varied. I'd work with different clients, I'd work in different industries. And it definitely provided that for me. But as I began to expand my thoughts on what was possible, Right, I didn't necessarily think that a lot of these things were possible when I was growing up because that's not what I saw every day. But when I began to be exposed, exposure is such a big word for me because even if you think about people that I grew up with in my neighborhood, who some of them aren't with us anymore, some of them are in jail or in bad situations. A lot of time I ask myself, well, what, what made me different? How did I not go down that path? And a big 
huge part of it is exposure. When I was very, very young, I was so fortunate to be exposed to a lot of different things. So they threw me in the quote unquote gifted class, right? So I could go to another school and I could play with instruments and get on the computer and have these experiences and go to these different places. And I benefited from that. And I'm saying, well, maybe if you had given my counterparts those similar experiences, maybe their lives would have turned out differently. But it's almost like we start to predetermine who's going to be successful and who isn't when we're in elementary school. And I think that that's a shame. But one of the things that that separated me was exposure. So that helped me in terms of pursuing college and so on and so forth. Then as I get got more exposed to what success actually looked like out in the real world, not just in my own bubble of what I could see around me, I said, wait a second, there's a lot more to this than I ever thought. And so I started to read and I started to get books and I started to go to seminars. And when that expands your, your belief of what's available to you, and then you say, well, but this person grew up in a similar place to me. He's, you know, he's not from another planet. Okay. Or she, if they can do it, I can probably do it too. I just need to figure out how. And my curiosity just said, let's figure it out. Let's see what happens. And, you know, that sort of led me down the path that I'm walking on today. Lifestyle design acceleration hacks. What is your favorite before the millions book? I would say think and grow rich by Napoleon Hill. That is one of the books that totally completely changed my paradigm. You have to get your mind right before you can really be in a position to accept that type of wealth into your life. So I love that book. I love it. I love it as well. What is your favorite lifestyle design app? This can be a business app or tool. If I can cheat and use two, I'm going to say Mint. The Mint app, which is a personal finance app that allows you to track and categorize all of your spending. Absolutely essential. If you're going to be in control of your money, you got to know where your money is and where it's going. And then also the Credit Karma app, um, which is a free app where you can check your report and your score totally for free so that you'll know where you stand. You can make changes. And then when you go to borrow money, you can get the best rate. So those are two that, that you know, I'm almost using every day. Love it. Two that haven't yet been recommended in over 100 episodes, and you guys should definitely check out those apps. Okay. What, and this is the follow up to our previous conversation. What do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed? Being in control of my own schedule. Now, I say that with a little bit of caveat. I do have clients, clients can be demanding. I work with busy people. You so sometimes you have to be flexible. But, you know, if I need to go to an event with my wife, I can make that work. If we need to be in Jamaica for a week for a conference, I can make that work. But due to technology, I can work from anywhere on the planet. So I love the flexibility that I have to be able to spend time with the people that I care about, but also, you know, take care of my business at the same time. What were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today? I knew that there was going to be a big sacrifice in terms of my time because there are things that you can't necessarily go out and do when you're focused on building a business, when you have to eat what you kill. You can't always be out with your friends having drinks or whatever it might be after work. You can't go see every movie. You can't binge watch every TV show because you have to be spending that money, uh, that time building and getting better at your craft and bringing in new clients. So, you know, there was definitely a sacrifice of time in the early going in order to have the flexibility on the other side. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? My parents. And again, if I can cheat a little bit, I'll also say my, my teachers at a, you know, let's say elementary school, because they all made me feel like one, that I was smart. And I don't know if they were lying or not, but I believed it. And so, you know, it worked, whatever they did. And I also believe, I believe that there were things expected of me, that I was expected to do well, that I was expected to work hard, that, that there were things that I needed to live up to. And I mean, to this day, my greatest fear in life is having to look back one day and saying, you know, I didn't live up to my potential. That's probably the greatest fear that I have because I know that people have expected that I was going to do something great. And, and I have those expectations placed on me. So between my parents and, and some really, really awesome, caring teachers that I had in my life very early on, that's been very influential to, to who I am now. 
I love that. And I can definitely relate to those, those heavy expectations, those heavy burdens. So I totally get it. Last but not least, why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions, even though we have every intention of getting to the millions? Because it's not easy. And, you know, when you don't have that blueprint, when you don't have that roadmap, if you didn't, weren't born into a wealthy family, if you didn't see all of these things when you were growing up, it can seem unattainable or it could just seem like there's a big secret that you haven't been let in on. And so you don't know the steps, you don't know the methods in order to take. And so when we don't know things, when we're uncomfortable with the path, we take the path of least, least resistance. And so maybe that's, you know, going to school, doing your homework, get good grades, go to a good school, get a good job. That's sort of what we have defaulted to because that's been beaten into our heads for years and years. This is how you're successful. Not realizing that if you take a look at the Forbes 500 or the Forbes wealthiest people list, that's not necessarily how they got there. As a matter of fact, most of those people, you know, don't get W-2s at the end of the year. Most of those people are business owners and that's a completely different mindset and it's a completely different path that you have to take. But there's a lot of self-help books, but there's no, not necessarily a book that you can read to tell you how you're going to build the business that's going to get you the life that you want. So because it's unchartered, it's difficult, it's easy to get stuck. But one of the things that I learned as an engineer is that there's a lot of big problems that we have to face in life. But the thing that I always take from engineering is how do you take these big, nebulous, hard to solve problems and break them down into very, very small pieces that you go, oh, well, I could do that. And then continuously build on it from there because you can totally psych yourself out. Let's just take the book, for example. You can totally psych yourself out saying, how am I gonna write this book? How do I get it on Amazon? How's the formatting work? How many pages should it be words? You could be done with it before you even write one word. Or you could say, I'm gonna sit down and I'm gonna write 500 words in the next hour. Anybody could do that. And if you do that enough days in a row, you'll wake up one day and suddenly you have a book written. And so I think we're stuck because it's hard. There's no blueprint. But I think the way through that is to just take a step back, break things down to very, very little, simple, small baby steps and take those baby steps. And before you know it, you've, you've walked a few miles. I love it. I love it. If I could ask one more question as it pertains, you have kids, right? I don't have any kids. You don't yet, have any kids. But I have nieces okay. and nephews. So you have maybe. nieces and nephews. So let's use them as, as an example. If you didn't have the ability to pass on any of your financial assets or resources, and you could pass on a piece of investing advice that would last your niece or nephew the, the you know the test of time, what would that simple piece of advice be? That's a difficult question. One piece of advice. See, I don't know if this is specific investing advice, but one of my favorite quotes from the book is where I say. If you're not intentionally trying to get wealthy, you'll likely end up accidentally poor. And I think that sums up a lot because it's look, you didn't mean for that outcome to happen, but you also didn't intentionally do the other thing. You, you didn't intentionally sit down and look at potential investments. You didn't intentionally look at what are the highest paying jobs that you could potentially get? You know, you didn't intentionally look through your spending to see where, you know, you could potentially clean that up. So it's about being serious about it because it's not going to happen by accident. Nobody is going to hand anything to you. Even if you win the lottery, you still have to get up and go and intentionally go buy the ticket. Right. A lot of people go, why haven't I won the lottery yet? Most of them haven't even gone out to buy tickets. So I, if there was one piece of advice that I had to say, which I think is all encompassing, is that you got to be serious, very intentional about it. If you're not intentionally trying to get wealthy, you're likely end up accidentally poor. Boom. There we have it. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Rob Wilson, this has been simply amazing. Rob, if the people want to hear more about you, if they want to learn about some of the products and the offerings that you have, if they want to get this book, please tell me about this book. Where can they find some of this information? Sure, sure. I would love people to go pick up the book, Secure the Bag, Create the Life You Desire by Managing Your Money Like You Mean It. And they can find that at securethebag.me. And it's also available on Amazon if you prefer to get it there. I'm Rob Wilson TV everywhere on social, but I spend most of my time on YouTube. So if you're looking for 
you know, advice and guidance and those sorts of things in the financial realm, would love a, su- a subscription. Uh, you can find me at robwilson.tv slash YouTube. There we go. And all of the links will be in the show notes. So ladies and gentlemen, as we close out this episode, as the outro music is currently playing, Rob, I, I have a selfish question. And that question is, I want to start serving on a few boards. How and what type of advice would you give me and how would I go about doing that? You know what? That's actually not too difficult because boards, they need help. They need people who are willing to roll up their sleeves and put in work because, you know, a lot of times they're a little bit unfunded and they need they need advice and guidance. So, you know, I would look up the organizations who you feel passionate about and who you want to start serving. I would reach out to the CEO or executive director and ask them when's the next board seats coming open. And, you know, it's, it'll be easier than what you think it is, because, again, they, they need somebody like you who is going to put in the time and effort to help them achieve their goals. So um, if you do that, I think you'll find some great boards to serve on. Thank you.